Greetings all. Welcome back to another episode of the Coptimizer podcast. This year, um, it's been kind of cool. We've had a lot of great interviews and I have learned a ton in this process. And Randall didn't know this before we turned on the record here, but I just I just let him know that he's going to be the final episode of year one of the of the Coptimizer podcast. We're going to we're going to take a little break between Thanksgiving and Christmas, gear up for the 2022 season. Oh my gosh, 2024 season. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, uh, we're going into the schools today. We're going to talk a little bit about SROs, their roles, and some of the some of the important things that they do that I think sometimes the general public misses. And we're going to get into all that. But before we do that, Welcome, Randall Doizaki, to the Coptimizer podcast. Thank you for having me on your show, sir. And Doizaki, we just talked about this right before we hit the record button, but that's a pretty unusual name. So, what is the what's the background of so, the name? So, I actually use Doizaki. I put my name on the board when I'm teaching classes or working with academies and some public speaking and doing, I put it on the board and I ask people, what is my family heritage? And I emphasize it's heritage. And being in law enforcement, we always get called out for profiling. Well, people look at me as the bald headed white male and they try to get the last name to fit my face. <laughs> and I have to call them out. They say Polish, German, Irish, and so on. Well, I will tell you, my biological I was, was going to guess Japanese, right? It is. Doizaki is Japanese. It goes back to the Doizaki family, goes to the 1600s. So my father, the man who raised me, uh, raised Japanese Buddhist. Uh, my grandparents came from Japan in the late 1800s. And my dad grew up here in Colorado, in Brighton, Colorado, in a Japanese farming community. My mother is from Iowa, Irish Norwegian descent. Her her main name was Kirkpatrick. My biological father, Gary Wick, who I'm very thankful for, I reconnected with him later in life. Unfortunately, both my father and my dad have passed away, but Gary is Wick, German. So I have German, Irish, Norwegian characteristics, features, but I was raised in a traditional Japanese Buddhist home. Every New Year's Day, we do a big tempura you know, I spent hours cooking tempura, but then my wife is Italian Catholic. Her parents are from Naples, Italy. So I eat good. I'm a, I like to eat. So, but yeah, I was raised in a, a Japanese Buddhist home, uh, married an Italian Catholic, and I still haven't figured out which direction things are going. Well, and now you're having a conversation with an Irish Catholic. So there we my, go. We my got name, it. my name kind of fits the face, right? Pale skins, uh, freckle faced Irishman. <laughs> all right. Well, I, I don't want to go any further either without wishing you and all of uh, your fellow Marines a happy, uh, happy birthday to the United States well, Marine Corps. Thanks, sir. We're looking pretty good. 248 years. I think we're holding up okay. Not too bad. Not too bad. And I and wish you a happy Veterans Day uh, well, for everybody you. that's coming up uh, tomorrow. Go out and, you know, we had... As I was telling you before we started the show, I had the opportunity last night 
Um, I'm part of a Masonic Lodge, I'm uh, currently Master Lodge, and we had a meeting at a retirement home here in the Denver area with some 50-year Masons, and a lot of them were Vietnam veterans. So we had the opportunity to really sit down. We had the only one we didn't have in there. We didn't have anybody in there from the Air Force. I guess they've got a different retirement home for the Air Force. <laughs> and we didn't have anybody there. Probably, from the probably someplace up, you know, more upscale than where you were. Yeah. They probably have somebody fluff the pillows and put mints on their pillow at night. Of course. But, you know, I appreciate all the veterans out there. It's it's truly we wouldn't be where we are today without the blood, sweat, and tears and lives that our veterans have given for the rights and the freedoms that we have. So thank right. all the veterans. Right on, right on. And, I, and while this episode won't air for a couple of weeks, uh, Correct. It, it'll be good. It'll be good for people to hear that. Um, yeah. Amazing stories. Like I, I, I don't tell this, I don't think I've ever told this story on the show, but you know, just, just the, the background in my own family. So the flag that's on the shelf behind me there, it's, it's got a bronze star on it. That's my dad's uh, from my dad's funeral. My dad was a Korean war veteran um, served uh, in some pretty hairy places uh, during the Korean war, but like a, a lot of, you know, a lot of veterans from those times, they didn't, he never talked about his experiences, but they don't uh, opened up later in life. He told me some really cool things and, uh, and I won't go into the whole story, but his, the short version of a long story is his commanding officer was Louis Truman, who was a World War II and Korean War vet, who was the nephew of President Harry Truman. Wow. Yeah. So my dad actually uh, had, an, had a, an assignment one day where he had to go from the front lines back to uh, headquarters to pick up a, a delivery to bring to uh, Louis Truman. Uh, he got in trouble because he didn't tell... Uh, Colonel Truman, where he was going, <laughs> he got yelled at when he got back and uh, handed him, my dad at the time was a first lieutenant and he, he handed him the package. And uh, when, when Truman opened it, a star tumbled out. He had gotten his field promotion to brigadier general. My dad oh, was, wow. the, my dad was the one that handed him the package. So that was kind of cool. And, uh, and then he made him do a, you know, have a couple fingers of bourbon with him, <laughs> you know, right there in his tent. <laughs> Sounds good to me. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, my wife's side of the family, you know, her great grandfather or her, I'm sorry, her grandfather, my kid's great grandfather was a bombardier navigator on a wow. B-24. His plane was hit on a return back to England uh, after a bombing run over Berlin. And uh, the plane went down into the North Sea. So he was, he parachuted out. He waited to the last minute because they were out over water and um, hit the water so hard he broke his back. Oh, Lucky for him, though, got scooped up by a Norwegian fishing boat. They brought him to shore and then unluckily turned him over to the Germans where he became a POW, spent two years as a prisoner of war. But they they took him to a, a Swiss hospital. He got he got surgery, and then I think it was Switzerland where he went and did where they brought him to do rehab. But just a crazy story, you know. He uh, wow, but only and, the and things like we said, don't know. Yeah, like it, he was the only one that survived, and so, so you think about lineage and you think about all of the things that it takes in history. So yep. yeah, so 
not only are you appreciative of our veterans and the sacrifices that they've made for, you know, changing history. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, sometimes history changes us and what might have been, could have been, would have been, should have been. All, so you know, my my dad and my uncles uh, all grew up here in Colorado, born and raised. They all, I've got at least two, my three Three of my uncles on my dad's side served in the army, uh, Japanese Americans. And one of my uncles ended up going over after the war and being a translator for the, the military with the Japanese uh, during the occupation when they uh, when J Japan finally surrendered, we, we went in. And some of the things, you know, you, you talk about that, that change, the family came to the United States and now they're back there. Uh, translating. Uh, my uncles were all raised in a Japanese family, speaking Japanese and English. My grandfather, when he came to the United States, went from California. They first ended up in Hawaii, then went to California. And he helped build the railroads going from California across the Rockies to Colorado. He worked with the English, uh, English speaking workers and Spanish speaking. So he learned to speak Spanish and English growing up and working, he came to the United States late 1800s. He wasn't, I, I can't remember how old he wasn't 18 yet. Wow. And, you know, so they, they worked across and then he helped establish things here in Colorado. And then my grandmother, so my grandfather took my mother's, my grandmother's uh, name. She was a, from a single daughter, uh, no boys. So, and he's from a big family. So he took the Doizaki name from her side. And there's a relative, my grandmother's cousin, George Doizaki, established American Fish in San Francisco, in Los Angeles. So they're big in fishing and all that. So, and then George Doizaki established the Japanese American Museum. He was one of the founding members in Los Angeles. And the honor that, you know, the Doizaki family has to serve. And then on my wife's side, we had, uh, relatives that served and I have my mother's side relatives serve Vietnam. One of one of my uncles is still alive. He's still dealing with some demons, but you never know what they what they come out with. Small world. Small world. And you know, it's just, you know, you were talking about him coming over and learning, you know, with not not speaking English. Yep. In in that time too. I mean, you know, I one of uh, one of my most recommended books that I've read in the last couple of years um, is the Empire of the Summer Moon, and it's mm -hmm. a book about the Comanche Indians. It was fascinating. It was it was absolutely fascinating. It was really about the the story of John a. Parker and the Parker family, who you know, uh, you know at the time the uh, the Comanche Indians were you know famous for their raids, not you know not just their clashes with you know, uh, Western settlers, but also with all the other Indian tribes. And, and at one point, the Comanche Indians held a landmass that rivaled the Roman empire. Um, uh, I mean, wow. and, and for a long time too, for a long yeah. time, Cra it, it just, it's just a fascinating story. I just say that all that to say, now we don't even let 18 year olds walk to school. <laughs> nope. <laughs> you know, Oh, it's too dangerous you know we we're it, yeah it's crazy it's crazy and uh that maybe we'll just use that as a little as a little uh kicker into what we're going to talk about again 
uh, getting into schools and then, you know, talk a little bit about what's happening there. But before we before we go there, why don't you tell us a little bit about your career, about your background and, and what you're doing now? So in a nutshell, um, right out of high school, went to Marine Corps, uh, served, had a lot of fun, served in the Far East. That was peacetime, 82, 86. Played in the jungle, had a lot of fun in the Far East, came back, did a number of other uh, jobs. They truly weren't careers. And with the support of my wonderful wife, uh, 36 years, we just celebrated 36 years in September. Very patient woman. Congrats. Very patient, putting up with me and all my Marine Corps crap. Um, but I wasn't satisfied. And I actually had a passion for serving. That's the Marine Corps. I like to fight. I was a scrapper in high school. That's why I went to Marine Corps. But I don't think, you know, I've talked about part of the reason I put the badge on. I was 11 years old. My family was held hostage here in South Denver. The guy got in the house, took my mom to the door with a gun and her ribs. It was on a Saturday morning. And even to this day, I remember the look of my dad's face. He's between the dining room table and the, the wall with my two-year-old sister in his lap. And he couldn't do anything to protect his family. Now, the guy finally gave up and surrendered. PD surrounded the house. And you look out the front window, and they're all over the rock garden and the behind vehicles drawn down on the house. And it was in 11 years old. I'm like, wow. So after I got in the Marine Corps, got married to my high school sweetheart. We dated when we were juniors in high school. And less than a year into our marriage, individual goes in to rob a bank. And he was dubbed the gentleman bang, bandit, off-duty plainclothes officer was working the bank, draws down, tells the suspect, drop the weapon, he turns, officer shoots and kills him. Had this individual come in five minutes later, my wife, who's a teller at the bank, would have been gone. She was leaving earlier. So there were two incidents in my family alone. And like a lot of us, we put it on to be that, that sheepdog at the door. We are the, the consequence for their actions. It's like being a Marine. You let the dogs of war loose, and we're going to come at you with everything we got. So I wasn't happy. So in 93, I went to the academy, put myself through the academy here at ACC, a local community college, finished my associates in 95, and I was testing with Denver PD, Arapahoe County Sheriff's Office, Jefferson County. And I was, you know, I only had a few steps left with each agency. Arapahoe County, I tell them, I did my polygraph. They say, let's see if we can hire you next week. I was like, okay. So I started with Arapahoe County, June of 95. And I was 31 years old. I was a little bit older. I wasn't a 20-year-old kid. I've already done some things. I used to walk steel, metal buildings, construction, fire, water, restoration, a bunch of other things. So I wasn't a green kid to say, but I was naive to law enforcement. Let's put it that way. But I identified when I started with the sheriff's office, and this is what we talk about when we're doing like coachings, as you all know, you, you identify what's the objective and you work with them. I said, where do I want to be at retirement? Arapahoe County is a defined benefit. So I had to figure out where I wanted to be. I wanted to be a, a lieutenant or, or captain and work backwards. So when I was with the sheriff's office, I did three years of jail. I went to patrol for three years, put in for investigations and sergeant I was in patrol. I came out number two on the sergeant's list out of 14 and three on investigations. I went to investigations at a stint there, promoted to sergeant, went back to the jail, then back to investigations where I spent six years 
as the evidence custodian, uh, general investigation or duties, dealing with calls and homicides and all sorts of crap, peer support coordinator, hostage negotiation sergeant, coordinator for the critical response team, the officer investigating uh, involved shootings, and did a number of other collateral. Went back to the jail with a couple of IAs. I stepped on some toes. I'm not known for being delicate around my chain of command. Did three years in the jail as a sergeant made lieutenant. Did my last six years as a lieutenant in the jail. I worked directly with the state office of behavioral health on a RISE program dealing with individuals diagnosed with uh, mental health disorders. And the RISE program is restoring individuals safely and effectively accompanies get them to get them to court had nothing to do with their their charges but they were not capable so i worked directly with psychologists and therapists <coughs> and for the record as a marine it was a professional relationship they were not there to help me <laughs> and my <laughs> being a marine uh, but then in 2017 i was eligible to retire 2018 I was recruited through LinkedIn to take over as a lieutenant for campus safety uh, with a local uh, school district here. I now supervise four armed sergeants. I'm usually armed and I have 80 plus unarmed officers that I work with that I supervise throughout the entire Metro uh, department. And, and it's, I will tell you this, I've seen more crap in the schools than I did in my time with the sheriff's office. The, the dynamics have changed so much in our culture and the issues we're seeing. So it's, it's, it's an eye opener and it's, it's kind of catching up to me, but that's where I'm at right now. Yeah. And I, I do want to spend a lot of time kind of touching on that because this is, you know, we're at a really interesting uh, crossroads in our country the last seven to eight years, a lot of scrutiny on policing. Um, and, you know, some of it, some of it we've certainly earned, but a lot of it I think is just comes from a lack of understanding yes, and a lack of role clarification about who's responsible for what. Um, and then when it comes to law enforcement, um, you know, what the rules are and how, and how law enforcement officers are legally um, bound by certain actions. They're, they're driven by policy and by case law. That's, you know, that's, that's the root yep. of all of our training and how everything, and, and sometimes the general public is, you know, they're not, you know, they're not bound by policy and case law. They're bound, you know, more by ideology and beliefs and personal beliefs and emotion um, and so the media at large, I think, is, you know, really almost wholly to blame for a lack of, you know, good public uh, relationships mm -hmm. um, because it, it, you know, it really runs contrary to their interests. And when I say media, sometimes people like think about your local reporter, you know, everybody's going to have the the crazy local reporter every now and then. But for the most part. I, I'm just I'm talking more about you know what drives uh, viewership, what drives it you know or in the modern era what drives the click throughs and you know it's kind of a long way of saying that the this rift between policing and the public actually sells. 
it mm-hmm. it really it uh, does. It's, it, it's like constantly throwing gasoline on a fire. You get the flare up, and then when the when the fire is about ready to go out, we need to flare that up again. We need to get people interested, and mm-hmm. and you know I think at the end of that, on the back end of it, everybody loses, and and we we lose as a I think as a country we've kind of lost sight of you know some of the values of personal accountability personal responsibility and you know it kind of goes to my quip earlier about you know we don't even let 18 year old kids walk to school anymore correct it's it's kind of crazy and um so in the just that little teaser that you gave us in the schools things um you saw you know more stuff in the schools than you've seen on the streets and what i would say generally the schools are just a reflection of what's already going on in the streets yes um and you know when people talk about sros there's only there's kind of a a very short-sighted view of what sr the value of an sro in the general public side because all they think about are, are school shootings which are horrible and horrific uh, and that's the last thing that any kid should have to worry about when they go to school is whether they're yep. going to get shot or not. Um, but that's only one thing of many that SROs offer in the schools. Yes. So that's kind of where I want to go today. It was, that was, that was a long way to get there, but. <laughs> well, but one of the things I look at when we're talking about SROs and, and schools and you hit on it with a community, I'll even go back to being a training officer. And I'm, I'm sure that a lot of your viewers and you yourself with some, with your background and everything, it always irritated me when I was training officers and we're out in a community and they wanted to engage. I would be out with a trainee and somebody walked, Hey, deputy D they couldn't remember my last name. They couldn't say my last name. So on the street, they always knew me as Deputy D and they would call me. They would reach out to me. They said, hey, we got this in the neighborhood. Hey, we got that. We got some new activity going on in the park. And they would call me and give me that update. And I would tell the trainees, I said, that's because you get out and talk to people. It doesn't matter what you say. If somebody's wearing, if somebody's out here and they're wearing a 49ers hoodie, like one of my sergeants is a big 49ers fan and we're in Denver. I don't know how he survives here with Bronco fans, but I, but I tell him, you go up and say, Hey, how's your team doing this year? I said something that simple. And you engage with him and you talk with them, you overcome that reluctance that everybody thinks, you know, cops are coming up there, contact me because they want to harass me. But even as a supervisor, as a leader in organizations and with your background, that relationship with your line staff starts with, hey, how's the weather? You got your you got your snow tires on here or, you know, how'd your team do? Or did, did you have a good weekend? What'd you do this weekend? If officers aren't doing that in the community, we lose. And that's where the big issue to me is with the SROs. We have seen SROs that have made it a career. I'm currently working with one of our, an SRO outside of my district. We are working on giving our officers NASRO training, the National Association of School Resource Officer Training, to our safety officers. And we're looking at how we can incorporate. So I reached out to him a year ago and said, hey, how can we bring some of the training you do from a law enforcement perspective in with the CSOs, with the safety officers? and how you incorporate that. And a lot of it is that relationship building. We have, we know SROs that know 
the students, their parents, and their grandparents. They've been in the community so much, so long, and they develop that relationship, and they don't realize it's it's also a trust building if they don't know what the officer likes, what the officer is truly there for, if the officer isn't, re if they just stand there, you know, with their arms crossed watching people, that's not going to help. I've seen SROs that keep nine out of 10 kids out of trouble because of that relationship. There are SROs that I've seen that the kids actually, students come to, community members come to, said, hey, what's going on? What do we know? And they trust those officers because of that relationship. They know that that officer is there in their interest. They know the officer is going to give them the straight opinion. They can't give them all the details, obviously, and they respect that. But how many officers have we seen in our careers that say, you need to go away? They don't even engage. And a lot of the times, as with the SROs and cops on the street, a lot of the times you just have to allow somebody to vent and say something, get it off, allow them to be heard and then paraphrase some of that back to them. And you get the information and those people feel better. And like I said, I don't think we're, we're doing a very good job of it with the media. They come in and they, they harp on the negative. They, they take out all the positive. When was the last time you saw the media do a big thing on law enforcement getting together for like uh, Special Olympics? I've gone out and done the, <clears throat> the polar plunge here in Colorado with Special Olympics eight or nine times. My family members, friends, uh, one of our Masonic lodges, they put a big thing on. They do a quick five-minute thing on the media. Hey, they're supporting Special Olympics. They're doing a torch run. They're doing a plane pull. There's not enough media hype on it. They, they focus on you know, like the accidents that we've all seen. You get the looky-loos, the people who slow down and they drive by and they got to see who's sprawled out on the road that, you know, is now, you know, road rash. And and they they glorify some of that. And I will tell you, Patrick, in the time that I was with the sheriff's office, I dealt with the Aurora Theater shooter. I dealt with some gangbangers that, that ended up in death row. I dealt with individuals that had gone in and committed egregious crimes. And, you know, and I've dealt with some of these people. And you have everybody that shows up and wants to be associated with those people. And then we're saying no. So we're the bad guys because we don't want to promote. I will not use their names. I will not use the Aurora Theater Shooter's name. I will not give them that benefit of glorifying what they've done. And the media feeds that. So how do we do it? We've got to do a better job of building those relationships like the SROs do. The SROs do some great, some phenomenal work. I will admit, as you'd said earlier, there, you know, there are different perspectives. And I've seen, as you may have seen, some SROs that kind of get in there. And they get a little salty and then they just kind of ride the job out. And then like, hey, hi, here. Oh, school's out. I'm going home. Other SROs are involved in a community. They're going to community events. They're involved in back to school nights and things. As a patrol deputy, I had, I kept a list of all the juveniles in my district. And I would go through and say, hey, I'm down the street from, let me go check in on this kid. I had them, they invited me to their graduation parties, the block parties, events, even an off-duty commission. Say, come on down a day off. Because I tell them when I'm on duty, I have to, you know, be careful about gratuities and, you know, that, uh, that, 
socializing and taking away their professionalism. I can be their friend. I can be friendly, but not their friend. And that's what the SROs do. They are friendly. They are a support. They are a go-to. But I don't think we utilize enough because everybody is so concerned about the badge. Sorry, that's yeah. kind of long-winded, but that's I'm passionate about the SROs. Yeah, and that's great because we're going to talk a lot about it today. Um, but, I, you know, so at the core of that, I think it's really comes down to communication. And while we, we don't need to spend a whole lot of time talking about coaching, you know, no. coaching is a big theme of of what this show is about. And it's, it's yeah. you know, how do you optimize? Well, for for anyone that, it, I don't, I don't care what you're doing in life. If you want to improve on something, you got to go find somebody that, that is really yes. good at what you want to improve on and get some coaching. <laughs> you know, mentoring is a little bit different than coaching. Yeah. People oftentimes they get them, they get them, they confound the two and the differences. Um, so, you know, what I'm hearing there is maybe, maybe police departments, regardless of your role in the agency could really, really benefit from coaching. And, and one area in particular is coaching on communication. Yes. How to effectively communicate. We are yes. at, at the core of what we do in policing. We're in the information business. Um, the, the flat, I don't care what anyone, you know, we, we may be in the relationship business, but above and above anything else we're in the information business because that's how that's how you solve crime that's how you get things done the more information yes. the better the information the more actionable the information uh the more productive and effective you can be and yes. how do you get information <laughs> you gotta have people working with you you gotta yeah. have that people willing to call you and trust you with that information yeah. And then you have to have good systems in place to make use of it. And, you know, I, I was I was a bit of a, a hard headed young officer. Right. Like um, probably a little bit more egocentric than I should have been. And, you know, but, but I had good mentors that kind of showed me the you know what the right way to do was. And then, you know, it wasn't until later in life that I developed, the, you know, this concept of coaching. But, you mm -hmm. know, sometimes you learn the hard way. Um, that the, the, the way you're working isn't working. And so you have to, you know, as long as you take time to, you know, have some self-reflection and introspect, and hopefully, you know, if you've got good leadership in your organization, they're not just rubber stamping you every six months, mm -hmm. but they're actually giving you really good feedback on what your strengths are, uh, yes. where you, where you need to improve, uh, and, and actually coaching you and mentoring you, um, and leading you. I mean, it's, you know, there's a time and place for everything, but I do think that it's a big area that needs investment in, in policing today. And a lot of it is technology. And a lot of it is the way our young, mm -hmm. our younger generation is, is being raised. They're, they're growing up with these things in their hand, right? There's yes. <laughs> and that's, that's how they, uh, they're not any less intelligent. They're not any less compassionate or empathetic. Um, they just have a different style of communication. And sometimes mm -hmm. that creates a rift yes. uh, between, you know, a generational gap, but you know, that's, it's not just on them to adapt to an older leadership style. It's older leadership styles also have to adjust and, and recognize that, you know, if, you know, if 
I want to get the best out of my employees and I'm going to have to make some, make some adjustments myself and, and everything is cyclic, right? We learn and we go. Yep. Um, So you're talking about technology. I don't know if you know the name Vinny Montez. He is a, uh, I think he's a commander with a Boulder out here. He's a, he's on LinkedIn. I've I've seen him perform. Yeah. He's, he's phenomenal. He's very entertaining. And one of his segments is about uh, millennial cops. And he says, you get this cop out there and says, hey, Siri, how do I deal with somebody uh, tripping on meth? <laughs> and they're doing it on Siri and stuff like that. And he's got a lot of great skits and he talks about the young guys. And But even here, we had one of our officers who was dealing with uh, a young female uh, in her mid-teens. And she's threatening suicide if they take her phone away from her. They're so attached to this. It's, it's that addiction to the instant media, the instant gratification. And that goes back to what we said, like with the SROs. If people want an immediate answer. I want to know now, now, now. I want you to do this. I want you to do that. But our SROs are, and just like any cop, we're, we're going to stop. We're going to take a breath and we're going to reassess. We're going to look at, okay, what information do I have? How do I move forward with this? How do I do this? How do I help these individuals avoid that? How do I prevent this? And you know, like I said, the information and that relationship, uh, instant, instant. You know, you look at uh, the stuff coming up with AI, and I've talked to a couple of people that are instructors, college instructors, facilitators, adjunct faculty, and even in uh, public education, they talk about how they have to manage uh, some of these processes, some of these reports and stuff, you can sit there and type something and they've got a full paper in five minutes. And then you go back and say, what did the student learn to use a computer to type his report? (laughs) (laughs) Or have the report do it for him, right? Yeah. Well, and I don't know about you, when I first started a patrol, we didn't have the MDTs. I was doing handwritten reports. I'm dating myself there, but no, I'm right there with you. If you made more than three errors, you had to rewrite the whole report. You didn't have, you know, word grammar or any of these other things to correct it and make it look good. And then you end up in court now and they've got the report and they're trying to reference their report when they're testifying. They're, it's like, and then they say, well, that's not what your report says. Well, wait a minute. Let me see what my report says. Oh, okay. That's what it wrote. You know, how do you know? That's funny. Technology. You'll appreciate this. Um, I, when we rolled out Axon Records, we, uh, it's been about three years ago and this before I retired, um, we, we go into that new records management system. When we were doing the training, I, I was telling this story of being really just trying to set up our, our officers to understand why we were making the change, mm-hmm. you know, where, where technology is going, why it's important to make sure that we're getting a front in front of it and using technology that's going to work for us. Yep. And so I, I told the story like, right, you know, we drive around, we get out of our cars, we would take out our notepads and we would write everything down on our notepad. And then, and then at some point, if you had time, you would drive back to headquarters and you would get out. We called them number ones. If it didn't involve an arrest or if it wasn't a major crime, we had these note cards, basically a, they were kind of like a half, uh, like maybe like a like a six by ten hard card, yeah, pre-printed form, and you would type in like name all the, all the the incident matter yep. and and 
that and if you made mistakes like we didn't have even like the fancy typewriters with the you know it's some sometimes you did i guess it depended on what you know where you were in seniority about which typewriter yeah. you got on but uh if you made mistakes it was like start over do it again tear uh, it which, up and which start made over. me which made me really appreciate my high school teaching or a typing teacher. Yes, um, agreed. That, that was like, oh my, that class was like, it was death when I was yes. in it. But man, that was one of the best classes I ever took in high school. But then if, but if you had a major investigation, right? Like a robbery, something like that, burglary, then we had to use carbon paper. And, yes. and so I started yep. talking about this and people are looking at me and then I stopped and I'm like, all right, anyone in here? I was like, raise your hand if you know what carbon paper is. Nobody. Like a couple of the older guys, but there were, were maybe, they had no idea what carbon paper was. Yep. And they're like, what, what is, what is this stuff you talk about? Like, yeah, like the, the typewriter key would hit one and then it would, oh man, I it was trying to explain it, but. So we actually tried to initiate, when I was working on my graduate degree, I used the Dragon program to dictate some yes. of my papers. And when I, I go back to what you're saying is when I was in investigations, we would dictate our cases, give them to the administrator, the secretaries, and they would type our case reports up for us. They would type all of our case findings and all that. And they would make all the grammar changes and make it sound really good. It's like, man, I sound pretty smart for an investigator. <laughs> but then we went and with the Dragon program, we actually brought that in and we had our officers try it. And it didn't, it didn't go off real well. But we had one officer that was so, I'm, to this day, I'm convinced he has a USB port in the back of his head somewhere. But he would use that Dragon mic and he would watch a video. He'd watch a recording if it's a body camera or whatever it is. And he would dictate from that camera. And he was so precise with that that you didn't have to watch a video. You know, because other officers, they'd watch a video and they try to type something. They watch and they try to type something. Watch and try to type something. And you you saw that. But look at how far technology has come. Yep. And to use some of that, even the recordings on the phone. I mean, you want something nowadays. Hey, just send me the YouTube that you recorded of that incident. You know, everybody pulls out their phones. Yeah, that's funny because th that was one of the reasons in this isn't a sales pitch for Axon because I know there's other companies that are doing this, but, you know, I really appreciated their approach early on because, you know, some of these processes that we talk about, like if you think about why are you writing a report, even even to this day, you know, I challenge chiefs because uh, I, I teach a couple of different classes and one of the things that I've I've challenged uh, some chiefs on here lately is why are you still typing reports? Yes. And because if, are you wearing body cameras? If you're not wearing body cameras, sure. You have to type summary reports, but if you're wearing a body camera, why, why even type the report? Because you have yep. auto transcription that can, that can occur. Well, yes. Maybe you should type like a summary and make sure that you've got good way to get your, your, your major fields in. But it, it's it's a bit of redundancy when particularly if it's a case where your video is going to be safe forever and yes I, I would venture to say almost almost every interaction these days outside yes. of accidentals and and other things almost everything should be saved i mean there's no reason to um to get rid of video anymore and and so 
yeah, it's just kind of one of those processes where, it's, uh, well, I guess it, you know, if you think about it in terms of if if you look at the daily workflow of an officer, and I'll get us back on track here in a second, but if you look at the daily workflow of an officer, you know, 80, 80 to 90% of the work that they do every day um, are things that are never going to get looked at a second time. Correct. Um, but, and it's mostly just documentation. Like I was here, saw that, did that, and then you're moving on. And so yep. why do we want to spend so much of our valuable resources, particularly in a time when we're having issues with retention uh, of yep. employees, recruitment of employees, um, doing spending our time on things that drive no value. A lot, you know, technology has evolved to a point now where it can replace a task that humans used yes. to do, but no longer need to do. And so now we can, you know, we can really just, you know, we can summarize it at the, when you clear a call, you summarize yep. on your body camera about what you did, what the yep. disposition was, what the outcome was. If there's any follow-up needs to be done, um, you know, you can certainly do that. You can make a decision about how you're going to move forward there, but most of the stuff, no need. It's already there, and yeah. So that's we can we can talk about this maybe in terms of how that how that interacts in the school environment because in schools we're dealing primarily with minors. Yes, and, you, you know, you're so not going to have your body camera running. Yeah, and um, that's what I was just thinking. You know, you're talking about the documentation, and the eighty ninety percent of the time is kind of routine, mundane not case related. But if you think about the SROs in the school, there's cumulative issues to build up to it. There may be precursors, there may be a little incident here, a little incident there. And under FERPA, you know, with student privacy and so on. And obviously under federal law, under federal law, you have to protect the privacy correct. of students. There are certain things that are non-disclosable. Um correct. So it prohibits the use of body cameras. It's similar to HIPAA. Correct. You know, when you're in a hospital environment, you have same to exact to thing. Yeah. And and that's where some of the challenges and, you know, we are held to the standard under FERPA and protecting student confidentiality and privacy. And so a lot of the officers, even for a PD wearing body camera, they go into the school, they are there for an incident. Their body camera being on is one thing. The SROs are going through the school all the time. They're there for an entire school day. And you know they're not going to be recording everything, but they turn it on when something escalates and they use that. So there's there's a lot of challenges with that. And, you know, you look at the community perception is that the, the pipeline to prison uh, approach and the thought process that people have behind that and the body cameras. Well, that's that's you know, you're doing this and and no, that's not necessarily the intent. That's as much to protect the student as to document what occurred, because. Like you said, the body camera is just that. The officer can do a quick summary, uh, an intro to what the, what the body camera was about. Then you've got the video. You can record that. You can have it dictated or downloaded or however. But there may be other issues that come up that lead up to that. And one of the issues I always have with our officers, and we tell them, and we've seen this in our profession, people come in and they're talking to people, even in the street, even going to somebody's house, sit down, shut up. Don't do this. Do this because I'm here and I'm in charge because I'm investigating a call. And in their house, well, this is more of an impact with students. Students are very emotional. There's a lot more going on. And what led up to it, they get disrespected. Somebody looks at their boyfriend. Somebody looks at their girlfriend. You know, 
they didn't get this position or they didn't get that. There's a lot more emotion that may lead up to it. So there's still a lot of questions and concerns that the community are bringing up about why and when the SROs are using the body camera. What is the justification? Are they recording throughout the day? Um, you know, <laughs> parents say, hey, how do I know my student isn't in the home uh, getting friendly with somebody? And, you know, that's not what the SROs are there for. That's not what the body camera is there for. But even with families coming in and they want to see cameras, they want to see, okay, what was recorded at this time in this location? And that is not disclosed. We do not share that. Parents come, well, I need to see this. No. If there's something relevant, we will disclose that to the PD. They will, they will deal with the criminal prosecution if something comes up. The staff, the supervisors are the ones to sit down, work with the investigation team and go and sit down and work with school leaders to show any video. Because, again, we want to ensure what they're watching is specific to their student. That's it. Nothing else. Well, what about these kids over here? No, we're not showing that. That is not relevant. So when you're talking about these recording devices and the documentation, you know, even the perception of eavesdropping and when you're recording, you know, in Colorado, it's legal to record the conversation between individuals as long as one party is aware the conversation is being recorded. So when their people walk up and they've got their phone out and they put it up in somebody's face in the recording, everybody knows. But do we know how many students, how many individuals walk up with their phone and they're recording what's going on? If we want to know what happened with a fight, we want to know who was where. Oh, all our officers need to do is they go and ask the kids that they've got, hey, have you seen that video on this? Yeah, here, let me show you. Hey, can you send that to me? <laughs> That's not us. And we're not asking the kids to do it. So they're not acting as anybody's agent. So nobody's going to come back. The kids have more information than we do. You know, they're recording this. So the body camera is minimal. Those body cameras are, are minor compared to what these, and these kids are down and dirty and they're, they're dropping the F-bomb and they're this and that, and they're in there, get this and get that. Oh yeah, you got that. But then on the flip side, with that social media, what we've seen is it feeds that I've been disrespected because now it's on social media that I got beat by this guy or somebody called me out this or somebody did that. And it's all over media and then everybody else plays it. And then somebody else puts their two cents in. And by the time we finally find out about what transpired, it's all over social media and it's tenfold what it was. So then we have to weed through what, what we had. Yeah, that, and that but, makes yeah, body camera. Yeah, it make it makes it pretty challenging. Um, so, um, for so the school district that you're that you, so you retired, you're working, you're working in in the schools. You say you Correct. have like some eighty some that are unarmed, um, and then a, a, a small number that are armed. Correct. What what do you, what are the I, I for for somebody that's maybe not involved in policing or maybe someone that's never worked as as a um as an SRO what are what are some of the the most common types of issues that SROs are dealing with in schools today and and how busy are the SROs in schools personally I'm, I'll start with the second part of that in my opinion the SROs are as busy as they want to be if the SROs, and we have some that have been at for a couple of decades that are phenomenal, 
they are out and about with the students. They're engaging with the students. They're going to uh, athletic practices. Uh, you have some that may be coaches that may be assistant coaches in some athletic skill and they're engaged. They get to know the families. So they're as busy as they want to be now, depending upon the school and the community and the demographics and so on. They may be busy on the other side dealing with a lot of little issues. If you look at, you know, you go back to when we were growing up, you know, you had the kids, a few kids were out smoking. You know, they go out certain places. I know here at our high school, they there are some bushes on one end of the school. The kids that smoke would go out there. Uh, the kids were smoking marijuana would go out there or, or, you know, you got the jocks, the football players on one end or baseball players. And you got the the uh, the nerds or the uh, the smart kids gathering together, talking about physics and stuff that I cannot even understand. And, you know, so you look at that. So it depends on the SRO and what they're doing. But now. With well, high school, what you're saying is high school high school hasn't changed much in the last 40 years. Kids are no, kids. no, it's just it's just what they've got going. But now you see more kids with the vape pens and, and the vapes are so rampant and you don't even know what they've got. We I was having a conversation with an officer. We're working on some some training because you get these things that come in and they almost look like a small electronic device. And it's actually a vape, and we're going back and forth. Okay. But it's, you're not supposed to, they're not legal in the school. So they have to go back and they have to deal with those different technologies. Um, so so let's, the let's SROs. Use, yeah, let's use this as an example, though. So a vape pen is something that is um, legally, you have to be 18 or older Correct. to be able to buy a vape pen. Correct. And to possess one and to buy the materials that we, you would use in it. Correct. Um, so... Just mere possession of a vape pen by a minor, um, what would what would be the criminal offense in in Ohio for that? Is is there a criminal offense or is it just an infraction that that uh, like a ticketable offense? So for us here, um, it's not they don't do anything with it. It's so minor um, that nothing's in it. Becomes an in school a disciplinary process. There's no criminal report. There's no document. There's no go to court on it, uh, the school and the officers would just document, hey, on this date, this time, this student was contacted with a vape pen, vape pen taken, turned over a parent or disposed of. So, and that could be uh, done by a teacher or an SRO, right? Correct. In a lot of schools, if they don't have the SROs, the schools will deal with it themselves. So, parents may not even be contacted and it's so minor now, it's a little bit different uh, here in Colorado, marijuana being legal for per, uh, personal and medicinal use. It's still illegal to have it on school grounds. Doesn't matter whether it's legal in the state or not. It is still a federal offense. It's still listed as a federal crime. They are not authorized to have it on school grounds, period. What's the what's the legal age to be able to use and possess marijuana recreationally in Colorado? Um, honestly, it have, I think it's 21. Yeah, I, okay. I don't keep up on the laws for that. I'm not a, I'm, I've never been big on marijuana myself. Um, so I don't keep track of it since I've gotten out of law enforcement. I want to say it's 21. Um, but even then faculty members bring it on school grounds. doesn't matter if you're, you're my age or not, you're not supposed to have it on school grounds. Same thing with alcohol on school grounds is prohibited. Um, but the students, the, it's going to become a discipline. It's going to become an internal student discipline management matter. 
They're not charged for it. Now, if they're bringing in and they've got it divided out and they're for distribution, what you and I would classify package for distribution purposes, that's a different story. That is turned over to the SRO or the PD and then they look at it. And a lot of times those may get filed with a detective and the detective come back and work with the courts and say, we're not going to file, we're not going to move forward. It's documented and dealt with. They may end up doing it as a diversion. And a lot of the SROs, I think that's where it comes back to them. A lot of the SROs will work with the schools and they say, okay, we have this, we notify the detective, but we are not going to, this is not going to be a criminal case. It is not going to be filed. This is going to be done as a diversion. We're going to do something within the school. Um, you know, I'll, I'll go back to, you know, as a patrol deputy dealing with the juveniles, I always made it a point to look at ways to keep the kids out of trouble. And uh, case in point, I had a young couple of kids in an apartment complex and they had a blowgun. Now, I'm a big hand weapon guy, so I've got a bunch of crap in my house. You're, you're more likely to get stabbed or stuck with something in my house than you are to get shot. So don't break into my house. My Rottweiler Shepherd would take care of you in the first place. But this kid and his buddy are in a parking lot. It's a covered parking structure, and they're using a blowgun. It's during the spring, summer, nice weather out. And they've got pop cans on top of this wooden fence that goes around the parking structure. And they're trying to hit it with a blowgun. Elderly female walking her small dog on the other side of the fence on the sidewalk gets stuck in the neck with a dart. Yes. It goes over and hits her in the neck. I hope she's okay. I shouldn't laugh until I know she was okay. She was okay. Uh, right. Scared the crap out of her. I get I called. Bet. I go out. And I was known in the community and I show up and I'm talking to them and the kids are just mortified. Parents are like, we had no idea. We thought they're being responsible and so on. It was unintentional. But technically, there was injury. Technically, a blowgun can be classified as a hunting. It's used for small game in some areas. But that was not the intent. There was nothing here. So what we did is we just wrote the quick little report, documented the injury, medical checked her out. She was good. But again, this is back a few, few decades back. The woman had bought a computer and she's trying to learn computer so she could do different things. The kid sat down and would go and meet with her a couple times a week and teach her how to use the computer. And we were done with it. It went away. Nothing happened to the kid. Uh, you know, and that's, and that's where a lot of our SROs come in and they're like, okay, what's the intent? What's this? How many kids actually, we've had kids that come in, carry a paring knife to cut an apple or a piece of fruit or something. How many students going back to your comment about 18 year olds walking home, how many parents would give their teenage daughter something and said, carry this pepper spray, carry this to protect yourself in our current climate culture. So if that's happening, how many, we've had a number of students. Oh crap, I didn't realize that was my bag. I've got a little pocket knife. I've got OC, well, it's illegal on school grounds. Are we gonna handcuff this student and take them to jail because they're in violation of having a weapon on campus? No. Do it as in-house, and a lot of the SROs, they deal with that, and it goes away. It's nothing that becomes criminal. If you have a street cop who's not an SRO, is not familiar with the community, the student, the demographics of that campus, doesn't know the parents, doesn't know the grandparents, that an SRO does, comes in, that street cop may be more likely to, okay, it's a felony, boom, you're going, we're hooking you, we're hauling you. The SROs prevent that. The SROs do more to do a diversion 
and de-escalate. And then if, we're, then if the student is concerned because of walking or threats or dangers, then we can take other steps to help address those fears, to help ensure the students are safe if they're not communicating with the SROs, if they're not communicating with their, any of the uh, safety officers for the school district or whatever, they cannot ensure that that student is safe. And if the student's not feeling safe, then we're not doing a good enough job. We're not communicating and building those relationships. So where do you think, uh, and, and that's, that's a great explanation because I think one of the biggest misunderstandings in here in my own local community, the high school that I went to, you know, in the post-George Floyd era, there was a big push to do away with uh, SROs. Mm-hmm. And there was, uh, you know, a, a small group of of students and parents that were, you know, arguing against that, you know, saying that they, they felt threatened by SROs and by law enforcement yes. in schools. And and so when you ask, but when you ask for specific examples of what the SROs have done to, you know, to create an environment where they feel unsafe. Well, they, they can't provide any, what they do is they provide generalizations based on yes. uh, emotional arguments, maybe from a, a halfway across the country. And they say, well, you know, I'm just, uh, I'm afraid of law enforcement in general um, for a lot of different reasons. Yeah. Um, you know, fortunately there was also a lot more support for the SRO program. That's ultimately yes. what won out. But I think a lot of schools kind of caved to some of that pressure. And I say this also with the caveat being that sometimes if you don't have good leadership and good training and good partnerships with your schools between your police departments and your schools, the SRO program can get misused and abused. Yes. And that's in, and then again, that's what kind of creates these. So yeah, we, we, they, you know, and you may, you used the term, you know, earlier, right. The, the pipeline to prison, that school shouldn't be that pipeline and kids shouldn't be getting arrested for things that are happening in school uh, where they might not otherwise be arrested for. And, you know, the, the, the challenge with this discussion is that there's a lot of nuance. Yes. What I would say in in almost every single one of these cases, I would say it depends. (laughs) Yeah. It's all situational. It is situational. And that's, and that's so important to understand, particularly when you're selecting your SROs and those that yes. are going to represent your agency in the schools. Correct. It, it is a good fit. The personality is right. The training is there. Um, the understanding of what the role is inside of the school and uh, understanding what the professional responsibilities are, both from you know involving things like FERPA and school policy, but also department policy and you know some of the some of the things from a legal perspective where officers uh, don't have discretion. You know there there is uh, statutory requirements on you shall act on these things, and yes, it takes a long time to train and learn and understand all that nuance. But from a public perspective, parents don't want to take the time to learn nope. all the rules. They want instant satisfaction in the moment, particularly if they feel like their child has been aggrieved um, yep. or been been wrongfully accused of something. So it 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 is such a an interesting and complex dynamic that um we could probably we could probably put on a 40 hour class on this and, and still not get get to all of it. But 
Um, so I just did a quick lookup because I was drawing a blank. Family Education Rights and Privacy Act, FERPA, F-E-R-P-A, Family okay. Education Rights and Privacy. So under that FERPA, and, and that goes back to, you know, if kids get in a fight, family wants to know what happened with the other kid. Well, we're not going to disclose what the outcome was with the other kid. And well, we need to know was discipline taken on that student because my student got this and so on. Um, but one of the things, you know, you're talking about like the training and, and I don't think we as a profession, you know, we talk about training, we talk about de-escalation training, we talk about skill set and looking and identifying a good fit and who is suited to be an SRO. I don't think we're doing enough on that. When, when things blow up and they get ugly, like you said, with some of the incidents that have happened and they come in and they zero in. One of the first things that an officer, when they get in trouble, one of the first things we look at is their training history. Pull up their training history. Did they have these training certificates? Do they have this? Well, that's great. We show we've got these certificates, but what are we doing to educate and let the community know what is involved with the training? What goes into it? One of the, the topics that we've been pushing that uh, has been nationwide, not just for us locally, is the CIT, the Crisis Intervention Team Training. And those 40-hour de-escalation training, we're putting all of our officers through that as well. We have it scheduled twice a year to put officers through. And we're even putting veteran officers back through it because they've been out so long. And the de-escalation of those communication skills, those asking those questions and not prejudging, not making an assumption that we know what that person is going through. And the individual we're working with, Jeff Santelli, he is doing, he has revamped it to deal with students, not just adults, not community members. These are specifics of the dynamics that we run into within the community and the school environment with the students. How do we help the students express that without being condescending, without being judgmental? Because we come in, we are in a position of authority. We have control, we've got a badge, we've got handcuffs, we've got all the stuff that goes with it. And I tell the officers that I work with and I tell people in the community, I tell you know, business owners, I tell leaders, you are in a position of control and authority over others. You are putting them in an adversarial position because you're being a bully. Your, your presence puts them defensive. And when our community is automatically defensive, they're already in that position, right or wrong. And then their students are getting in trouble and they automatically assume drives me nuts when I go in and they're dealing with a, an agitated student or a student or somebody who got in trouble and the individuals are standing over the student in uniform. They're looking down, put your butt in a chair neck across. So obviously officer safety has to come in play and you have to keep that space. Don't encroach on them. Just like we see in the community, but it's much more impactful on the students than emotional trauma. They haven't developed those, those coping skills and those communication skills that somebody in their 20s or 30s may have. You so guys, when the SROs, they, they've got to have that training. They've got to understand. But are we providing the foundation on that to the community? Are we going, they said, yes, they have training. Well, great. What is this damn training that you've done? They do an online course and you give them a certificate that they sat there and watched the video for, for a day and said that they're sufficiently trained. No, the CIT, when they come in and they do their role-playing, We've had officers in tears. We've had role players in tears. 
because it is realistic. And I, and I think that we could do better communicating that out to our communities on what we're doing. Invite them. You said earlier, hit on the, the, the point that everybody focuses on the negative. Everybody focuses on somebody stumbled and fell. Okay, who's talking about everything that they've done to prevent those falls? What have we done to guide them to become better at it? Even as leaders in our leadership positions that a lot of us have held, we automatically go in and we jump on somebody for a mistake. How often do we go and we start, explain to me your thought process. Tell me what you were thinking and how you ended up, what was going through your mind, what led up to this action. We need to do more of that with the community. We need to do more of that with the students. And we automatically go in and assume the student is, is wrong. They've got a vape pen. Did we jump on them? Oh, well, you got a vape pen. So why are you bringing a vape pen to school? Whose vape pen was it? Did you get it from home? Oh, yeah, my parents have it. Okay, why are you bringing it to school? We go in and we automatically don't jump on them for having a vape pen in school. I'm more concerned about somebody having bringing uh, knives. I had an officer assaulted with brass knuckles a number of years ago on things like this. Those, that's a different approach. But if we do more in showing the training we're doing with our SROs, with the officers responding to the schools, and you don't have that beat cop who's a little badge heavy out to make a name for themselves or whatever it is, you know, who's angry because they got to go to school and deal with a student when they could be out catching bad guys <laughs> in the community. And then the officer goes in there and they're like, hey, you know, I got better things to do with my time. You know, how many people, how many officers have done that with students? Well, you know, when like, you have, that's good. It's a great point because when you have officers that are, that are acting like that, that's generally, generally, I think, reflective of the culture in which they've been trained in, in which they've been, been raised in. And, and again, those are, that, that, that all goes back to uh, organizational culture and training in general. And this is, yes. so we're kind of, it's you were we're covering a lot of different ground um, around this subject of SROs, but it really comes back to the this idea of of when when we were pulling SROs from the schools and we were saying we need to defund the police, then you know you're you're looking at two, I mean two and two things that are are really catastrophic in the long term because. Name name a single profession out there where if you wanted to improve performance, that you would train less and uh, spend less money on, right? I mean, mm -hmm. it, it just it it doesn't exist, and and so the police, the demand for police services are still there. The demand yep. for police services in schools, whether you have SROs there or not, is still there. Yes, and, and so if you pull the SROs now what you're asking the the local police department to do is now expend resources to go into the schools to investigate this. And what you've said yeah. and what you described, I think pretty well is now you lose the nuance. And so for, for parents that have been, that have taken this position that you want to pull SROs because you feel like it, it is increasing the risk that your child may get arrested and wind up with a criminal record in school I would I would argue that SROs actually decrease the likelihood that that's going to happen do. because they're man, they're taught and trained on how to manage what be, what is it, it, how to keep policy violations at the school level from escalating into events that become criminal transactions 
yes where, where officers begin to lose um discretion now you know it's we could use an example i mean and again this is where nuance comes in and where training and experience comes in and discretion comes in because you, you know as a kid i i mean fights in school were not uncommon i wouldn't no. say that they were common but they were not uncommon you know hey i'll meet you in the parking lot after school or a scruff up you know scrum in the hallway i, I yep. mean technically if i touch you in a in a rude or insolent manner you know that's battery um and it's mm -hmm. it's going to be pretty simple you know simple battery simple assault regardless of mm -hmm. how it's defined state to state but that's it and could you be subject to arrest absolutely you should, yes. sure could be do we do we want to arrest kids um no the, you know every time they get into a little push and shove match probably not no. however do we want to arrest kids that um, have a pattern and a history and a behavior where they keep getting into physical altercations because now they've become a danger to their to their classmates they've become yes. a danger to the staff and they're disruptive to the learning environment so yeah there there's always going to be a line that that can't be crossed and once it is crossed then that's when we we have to make an arrest but at that point where where investment in your police departments and in your SRO training and then also community investments through programs like like here locally um we use a program called the Juvenile Detention Alternative Initiative, JDAI, okay. which all stems from the Juvenile Justice Delinquency Protection Act. Um, Perfect. Yeah, I I got to. I was very fortunate. I worked with a group called Fight Crime Investing Kids. I'm on their national advisory board. I traveled. I testified before Congress, before Senate, in in arguing to get this reauthorized. Why? Because it provides funding for programs that. We do things like juvenile jeopardy, where you know, like we have police officers and others that are trained to run these programs that where police officers will interact with students about yep. what the law says and what you can do. Um, and it builds relationships, but it also builds a high level of understanding of yes. why police do what they do, why students, why there are certain rules in place. And so, you know, these are these are just a couple and these things also support um uh, CIT training and some of those uh, the yeah so it, it's that's kind of a long way of saying investment is the key it not yes not divestment but investment yep. we've got to keep pushing the boundaries on what we yep. think we're capable of and so one of the areas where again you know you, you know sometimes you might call them badge heavy um I I think maybe maybe you just say look it, it's it's an officer that may, maybe doesn't necessarily operate with um, sufficient discretion. Uh, yes. They, they're, and, and this, these are the officers that I would love when you, when, when you talk about a coaching program, yep. those are the types of officers that, that I would start with first when you, you know, and, you know, my, my podcast here, we're uh, sponsored by performance protocol, which is taking experienced police officers, some of which are SROs like yourself and, and work in the school environment and training them to be uh, life coaches so yep. you can work through these issues and you can train in a very um, neutral environment um, where, you know, a non-judgmental environment about, you know, what strengths are, what weaknesses are, how to improve. But if you can get to those officers at a young age and really, yes. you know, or early in their career and, and be persistent throughout their career, 
we can improve these outcomes um, in the long term. Yes. Where, where I'm curious, to, some of your thoughts are is what do you think are where do you think the problems generally occur when we wind up having arrest occurring in schools that probably shouldn't happen? I mean, um, I've got my thoughts, but I'll save them until I give you a chance to answer that question. And, you know, from your experience, what generally tends to go wrong when we start seeing uh, maybe a higher number of arrests inside the school environment than we would expect? So to me, what I've seen, there, there are two points to this. One, we've had individuals that want to use officers to come in and be like an enforcer, be an intimidation. We've seen it in the community. We've seen individuals tell their kids, you need to behave or I'm going to have that officer take you to jail. Oh, yeah. That's a favorite of, of parents. All cops love that. When you yeah, go, you, and, when you meet a, a parent with a little kid, oh, you better behave or he's going to take you to jail. Yeah. It's <laughs> like saying Santa Claus isn't coming to the house because you've misbehaved. <laughs> you know, I, yeah. But if you and we we make humor of it, we laugh about it. But that's that's you know almost it's humorous for us in law enforcement to sit there and say, well, wait a minute, why am I even involved with this kid? The kid's out of control. It's not my issue. Yeah. But but so you see that oh, we got to do something with this student. Your officer came in and they were laughing and joking and they got the kid to calm down and they were doing this. I want them to, you know, intimidation. No. So that's one issue. The second one is, and I tell the individuals I work with, there are two points to the sergeants and even my chain of command. If it's not burning down and nobody's dying, we have time to step back and reassess. How many officers, and I'm sure you could reflect back on your career and some of your other listeners, how many officers go in, they see something, and they automatically decide what the outcome is going to be before they've gathered all the facts. They take a little bit of information and they act on it based on that. I don't, I think we're quick to judge and quick, even especially in a school environment. They want to make quick progress. We've got to get through this. We've got to get this done. We got to we've got to slow down a little bit and we have to think about it. If you think about uh, a student who lashes out, let's say a student brings uh, a pocket knife to school or a butter knife to school. And they're saying that they're, they, they brought it to defend themselves and they lash out at another student. What is the precursor? What is, yes, you and I identify that is a crime. We don't disagree on that, but we're not taking the time and, and not just individually, but I think nationally, I think any organization gets into this habit. You have, you address that, but what led up to it? Is this student being bullied? Is Are there other dynamics? Are there issues? How many students have we dealt with? And we see this in the community. It's not just specific to schools. You see individuals acting out in the community. You see young adults acting out. And you trace it back. What is going on at home? What is the violence at home? What are they being exposed to? We talk about children being sexually active. And I've seen some stuff I'm like, as a Marine, I'm shocked. I'm like, where in the world are they getting this information? Well, you know they're getting it somewhere. Yep. You have you have students doing things, and I was like, you did what? Where? When? How old? And you're trying to figure this out. So where are they getting it? But we're quick to judge on the moment. And again, with students, you're looking at young, hormonal. They haven't developed those skills. So are we helping them develop those skills? 
or are we reinforcing that behavior, that conduct? So one, community, addressing that with the families, addressing with people in the community. Oh, these kids are hanging out. They're up to no good. Think back in our careers, how many people, and this goes to some of the challenges that we see with profiling. Well, so-and-so is in their neighborhood. Okay, what are they doing? Give me some details. And when somebody calls and complains about an officer, they were rude. Give me an example. What was, can you tell me what? Well, they just didn't say hello. They weren't very nice in their tone. Okay, is that a performance? Con is it a, a conduct? Is it a training? Is it a personality? How do you address it? You know, it's not like they walked up and took something from somebody. And we, we don't take the time to look into the backstory. We're acting on a quick spur of the moment comment made or action. If place is not burning down and nobody's in immediate danger, take a breath, military style, tactical withdrawal, take a breath, step back, reassess and redeploy. If the person assessing it is too ramped up or too engaged, then we as leaders need to be able to say, okay, why don't you step back? Let's have somebody else step in and you tell me what you've got while this person goes and helps with it. School leaders tend to do that. They're quick. I need this. I need that. I need this student out here. And, and we come back and said, why? Are they a danger to themselves? No. Are they a danger to others? No. What are they doing? F you to the teacher and F this. Okay. So why am I involved? Why are you calling somebody? Because I need them removed. They're not a physical danger. So how are we addressing? And then the students, the community sees that. So that, I hope that, that you just question. that right there, just uh, that gets to the core of what I was discussing, because that ultimately and we can think of a couple of examples really quick, just based on some of those descriptions you provided. Um, I believe it was a school in South Carolina where a young lady is on her cell phone. Teacher is telling her to get off the cell phone. She doesn't. Um, so the teacher gets frustrated and calls the SRO. So now the SRO comes down yep. and this leads to an altercation and the girl eventually gets flipped out of her desk. Um, you know, and that just leads to bad outcomes all the way around. Yep. And, you know, the interesting thing about that. So in the media that's portrayed uh, as, you know, the, the, you know, just, you know, really bad performance by the officer, right? You know, criminal wrongdoing by an officer, which is true in, in some respects. Um, but then there's also very little discussion about, uh, like, what processes are in place in that school? What leads to that? Why, yep. why is a teacher inclined to call a police officer to come in and that's what and that's what you mentioned that when police officers assume the role of enforcer in the school uh and when they're not properly trained to understand what their roles are it's right. easy for them to take on that role right because yep. they're trained to be protectors first responders problem solvers and if we send them into a school with that you know with the uniform on or whatever the uniform of the day is depending on what the jurisdiction decides well, now they're going to go in there and and now it's a challenge to the ego as it is anything else, right? I go yes. in there and I tell you to put down the phone and and you're not going to do it. So guess what? <laughs> yeah, the phone's coming, you know, and you're coming mm -hmm. with it. Um, and and then that leads to an altercation. And so that was that was really interesting because when that hit the national news, 
there was no discussion of, about why why was the police officer even in the classroom yes. in the first place what, yes um and you know what is the administrative way to handle a policy violation clearly not a criminal violation um there's nothing criminal about a student using a cell phone in a classroom no. um so and i'm not saying it's appropriate and i'm you know the behavior has to be checked some way and Correct. That, that's that's where the school professionals need to step in and make yep. a determination. And, and that's not the role of the police. And so the police officer also has to be trained well enough to the to the extent where they come in and they're when they recognize that they're being asked to do something that's outside of their scope of responsibility and authority. Yes. And, and have the confidence to say, you know, pull the teacher outside in the hallway, maybe for a second and say, hey, I'm not yep. going to do that. And this is why here's what here's what i would say uh needs to be done and i'll help facilitate yes. that but i'm not you know i'll walk down whether it's you go to the vice principal or whoever you know they tend to be the enforcers in most schools yes you you, you take that route um well and for me patrick i would i you know i take it back to the same thing in the community and that public perception that just because somebody's an area doesn't necessarily mean they're up to no good um, you know, somebody says, well, they're hanging out over here. They're being suspicious. Well, what's suspicious about it? And then the officer contacts them and they're just waiting for a friend to pick them up or whatever it may be. And there's that, well, we need them to check them out. And I'll be honest here in my neighborhood, I, I live in a predominantly, uh, well-established neighborhood and, uh, most of my neighbors are retired and some of so vehicles out in the neighborhood and, uh, couple of years ago during the winter, I've got a vehicle parked two houses down across the street and it's during the winter, the vehicle's running. I can't see anybody in it. So my background is, Hey, this is suspicious. And so I call a local law enforcement agency and said, Hey, you got anybody in the area? They said, Oh yeah, we already got two phone calls by your neighbors. <laughs> so you got three of us calling, but it's situational. It's during the winter, not a vehicle we recognize vehicles running you can't see anybody in the driver's seat is something going on do we have a problem i'm concerned just as much about somebody having a potential medical issue or something like this am i in a position to go out and start knocking at the door yes with my background and time i was civil sheriff's office i'm authorized i'm peace officer in the state am i going to go out and start making contact outside of my jurisdiction no i say hey come check it out they find out the individual you know, uh, some stuff going on with the, the driver and they got it taken care of. But the automatic assumption, if somebody is doing something wrong, call the PD or the local law enforcement, have them go check it out because this car shouldn't be here or this person's hanging out in the neighborhood or or whatever. We've had, I don't know if you've seen it, I've had people drive by my house and they're taking pictures. And I'm like, why are you taking a picture of my house? And I go on and I ask him, well, it's a real estate agent and they're doing comps in the neighborhood. Okay, is that okay? That's fine. And we leave. No big deal. But even for me, I'm suspicious of somebody because of my background. I've had investigators for uh, defendants in criminal cases, major criminal cases that were sentenced to, to life in prison. I've had their investigators show up at my house because I was a supervisor in charge of the case. And they want to know how the individual was treated. And it's the pre-sentencing investigation. But they show up at my house. I get a little concerned about that. So yes, I'm going to go out and I'm going to check who's there. But the local community, the general community, and it's the same thing we're seeing in the schools. People see something. Oh, I don't want anything to do with it. I'm going to call and have them go deal with it. I'm going to punt and 
Let them be the enforcer because then I'm not the bad guy. I'm not the one that's addressing the phone in the classroom. I'm not the one addressing the students wandering the hallway. We've got people in uniform for that. Well, that's not what they're there for. Right. So, yeah, it's it's using them outside their scope of responsibility and authority. Yes. So I want to go back to something else you said, because here I'll use another uh, case example. Um, when we do citizen academies and and where we have the opportunity to have have our residents come in and, and you know, every community does them a little bit different. But yes. ours generally was anywhere between six to 10 weeks, one night a week yep. where for a couple hours we have subject matter experts from inside the agency come in and teach classes on all things policing. And parents, I think, and community members sometimes are often shocked, particularly in the ride along portion yes, where they actually get in a car and they go out and see the things that people actually call the police about. Um, so and this this kind of goes to back to the training when you have a, a suspicious um, subject gets called in. Um, well, a lot of that, it, it, it again, it's going to be if it's two o'clock in the morning. The officer is probably going to have a high level of, of suspicion yes. about what's going on because who's out at two o'clock in the morning? What are they doing? And they might have a very legitimate and good reason, but there's yep. that's also when there's a lot of crime activity and and you know so it's an elevated risk yep. to the officer and to the community. So the approach might be a little bit different, but in the end, you know, if you have the officer that shows up, hey, what are you doing here? And it's a person that lives in the neighborhood, or they're just walking through, regardless of what their, you know, what their race or background is, you know, that, that they're going to find that somewhat offensive. Like, mm -hmm. what do you give a shit what I'm doing here? Like, mm -hmm. <laughs> I don't have to tell you anything. And now we've started this confrontational exchange. Um, whereas, you know, if, if you roll up and you approach the person just like, Hey, how you doing tonight? Uh, Hey, I just wanted to let you know that, uh, some of the neighbors have called in and they found, your act, your actions to be a little bit suspicious. So I'm just here to check and find out what's going on. Um, mm -hmm. You know, and then you start a dialogue with them. And in the end, because if you haven't, you know, if you don't have good specific information, you know, for a Terry stop that, you know, reasonable, yep. articulable suspicion that crime is afoot, then, then there's no legal authority for you to yep. take that contact any further. So, and again, these are all things that oftentimes, Many citizens they don't understand the rules of engagement. Uh, what what's got what guides these interactions? Yeah. Um, but when you take that into the school environment, right? It's it's really you're you're generating. Um, you know, it's it's really just kind of the same issue, different location, and maybe applying a little bit uh, more of an interesting dynamic because you're dealing primarily with minors, um, and and parents these days yep. are are oftentimes very emotional in their response. Yes. Uh, you know, they're long gone are the days when if, if someone says, you know, I'm calling your mom and dad, that was, that was the ultimate like yes. shit moment. Like, you, you know, you weren't worried about the cops being called. You worried about mom and dad finding out that, you know, you're, yes. you're out Agreed. past curfew or, or whatever, you know, you're up to no good or, um, yeah. And that, and that long, that, that, you know, those days are gone and now it's, there's mm -hmm. a tremendous amount of suspicion about yes. the, you know, the police interaction. And, you know, so that's where cameras 
uh, can come in. But here, here's another question I wanted to ask you. And I know we're starting to, we're starting to get pretty long here. So uh, a couple more questions I wanted to touch on, and then we'll wrap it up. But what I made the prediction back in 2014 when we went on when we went live on our body cameras, I said I told I told people in my staff we had a lot of conversations about this because we had been looking at body cameras for even a couple of years up to, at that point. The technology just wasn't where we wanted it to be, so that's that's why we waited yeah. a little bit. And it's far better now than it was then. But my question was, is how long do you think it will take for teachers and medical providers to be wearing body cameras? Uh, Personally, I'm surprised medical providers are not wearing them now. Yeah. Um, I would not be surprised to hear that it is a conversation discussion. You've got paramedics that respond to calls and they're dealing with something and, you know, they call into a hospital and they're calling to talk to a doctor. And I would not be surprised if it gets to the point where that technology is an almost a live feed for first responders. So it goes, you know, it's like we have the halo cameras and, you know, we can pull up cameras in different locations and watch stuff live. I've got cameras on my house. I can pull up and watch the live activity. I would not be surprised if it moves that direction because right now the BW, uh, the, the body worn cameras are an uh, review stage. We pull up cameras and we record and we review it. I would not be surprised if first responders get to where their, their live feed. Well, they already are. Recorded. I mean, we, we use live feeds in our agency. Um, well, I mean, so even like uh, specifically to like medical personnel. Okay. Yeah. And in that, because if a doctor is trying to do an assessment and they're referring through a phone, through a call, because they do it now, you can, the, the kids got it on their phone and they're recording stuff live. So I think you're going to see more of that. I think the challenge with schools and education, I wouldn't say just public education, but even in the college classroom and recording some of this, um, I would not be surprised if you see individuals doing more of that. How many people in the community that we deal with now have dash cams? And we've seen that come up where somebody's involved in an accident and two or three people that observe it or that were directly involved have it on dash cam. I had a, a brother last night showing me a dash cam where he got, uh, where an individual, they're trying to merge and somebody tried to cut him off and he drives a big truck in the, the dash cam caught the other driver cutting into his lane and the other driver is on their phone and that's on his dash cam. So he shows that to the agency that was fine. Yep. Here you go. And his big tire smashed the, the, the rear uh, passenger or the rear driver's side door on this vehicle. So, you know, the vehicle came in and hit his tire, the, the vehicle, he was in his lane and they just tried to move over lanes but the dash cam. So if people are already using dash cams, um, I'd be surprised if they don't start seeing more of it. Problem in a school environment, especially in the public schools, I think uh, education, uh, adult education, universities, colleges, private institutions, trade schools, and so on. I think theirs is going to be a little bit different because of like we're saying with the FERPA and the public education, you're dealing with juveniles. 
And as long as if, if I'm in a classroom as an adjunct faculty and I'm teaching a class and I have something, a camera on, and I'm showing that and I'm recording it, I think there may be less interaction. Um, I know in the college classes that I've taught, even when I'm teaching academy, I'm out there doing public speaking and so on. And the interaction is more free flowing. People may be less hesitant if they know it's being recorded, if an instructor has that on. But I don't think uh, medical responders and so on, I don't think that'll be an issue. I think that'll be welcomed. And honestly, I'd be fine with it personally. You know, I, I think it's just a matter of time. And, you know, yes. I think the, the the questions that the average citizen needs to begin to, to ask themselves is how much how much of this surveillance do I want and I do I feel comfortable with? Because yes. the 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 funny thing is is like people think everybody else should be wearing cameras, just not them. Yes. <laughs> because we don't trust other people to do the right thing. And I'll I'll I I have talked about this, but I'll mention it briefly. Again, in these Citizens Academy classes, one of the first questions that I would ask is like Raise your hand if you feel the police should, if every police officer should be wearing a body camera. And if you've got 30 people in the room, I can promise you 25 hands go up. Yes. And then I asked the follow-up question, explain to me why police officers should be wearing body cameras. And primary, the primary answer or a general theme is because it's an accountability tool and we need to ensure that the police, the police officers are are acting uh, within the scope of their responsibility and the law. Yes. That's kind of a, a polite way to say it. Um, and very, very rarely does a citizen in this in these in this environment say, well, it's it's to capture evidence to help in the prosecution of violators of the law. And, and so what, what I then explain the process of what it takes to get hired as a police officer, where you almost, you know, it generally 88 to 92% of the, of our candidates are, are um, vetted out. Like they don't mm -hmm. make it through our process. Correct. Not necessarily because they're not good people, but for one reason or another, there's something along the way that has eliminated, eliminated them from the hiring process. Yes. And so what I'm saying is, is like we're we're running these officers through the ultimate test to check character, integrity, work ethic, all the things that you would want and need in yes. a person that's entrusted with this level of responsibility. It doesn't mean that the process is perfect. And that's why the first year of employment is generally an at large uh, or an at will employee status where chiefs have the authority to to terminate employees. Yes before they become merited or protected by unionization, depending on where, you know, which state you live in, uh, you know, that's kind of the, the first year is really the vetting process then too. Um, so sometimes people like if an officer does something wrong or gets caught doing something wrong in the first year of their employment, at least particularly in our state, like uh, people view that as a failure uh, on mm -hmm. the, on the agency's part. And it's like, no, that that's by design, certainly, depending on what it is, we'd like to catch it beforehand, but you can't catch everything. And, but with all that being said, what I'm telling you is that we're finding the best of the best and they're, and then we're sending them out there to deal with people 
that are the worst of the worst. Not meaning that they're just bad yep. people, but people in crisis, people addicted, mental illness, yep. or just flat out freaking criminals. And the public's reaction and the public's response is almost always, I trust the police officer less than I trust the criminal that he's interacting yes. with. And so I, I just find that fascinating. And you can see it now playing out in some of these arguments that are going around in schools about yes. wh what are teachers teaching in the school? Like um, what, what's going on in the classroom? Like parents no longer trust what's going on in the classroom. And so they want verification. Yes. But you wouldn't. But those same parents aren't going to be the ones that are going to want to wear a body camera around and have their right. behavior and performance, whatever they do, video recorded and yep. audit and and you know the ability to audit in, per, in yep. perpetuity. Uh, it, it's it's for always for the other person, and it leads to kind of a never-ending cycle of, well, I guess it's a good time to be in the body camera business because. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. Well, and I'll take it outside of just the body camera. I'll go back to conversations I had when I, I actually ran for county sheriff here uh, last election. I didn't get the party nomination, but I was out having meet and greets in the community. And you have conversation with community members and the perception about the legal authority of law enforcement and our ability to perform our duties. And during those conversations, and we're hearing this nationally, uh, there are even political figures that say our constitution needs to be rewritten. Well, I used to teach constitutional law in American government. I would carry a copy of the constitution with me. I can't memorize, I'm a picture person. I can't memorize it, but I would pull it out and we would talk about the constitution, bill of rights and so on. And I would challenge them. I'm not saying that they're necessarily wrong in their views. I'd say they're misinformed. They said, what is the purpose of the Constitution and the intent and everything that we have today? You know, we talk about Terry stops and everything else. All that is based on the Constitution and, you know, what's been built on. I said, if you throw the Constitution out, everything else that we're doing, everything that gives you the right to do what you're doing now, everything, all the restrictions and the standards and the parameters under which we operate, as a society with our government and law enforcement is out the window. It doesn't matter. So you throw that out. I can come in and do whatever I want with you. And there's nothing you can stand on. And then I say, what is the purpose of that? The constitution, why was it written? And I said, bottom line to keep government out of your business, but as a public in working the public uh, uh, service in law enforcement, even in the military, we're at the will. We're there for a purpose. And if you take that away, what have you got? You have no structure, nothing to come back on. And, you know, you're talking about body cameras and your privacy. How many businesses, when you walk in, they've got multiple cameras. They see you walk by in front of your business. In law enforcement, one of the things we do when there's a crime, canvas a neighborhood. Find out who's got cameras. People see you coming and going. You've got tracking apps on your phone. You can see, you know, when you've got that Google Maps and you're, you're tracking so you can see where you're at. I want to go here. It tells you where you're at, your starting point. You type something in your computer and you do a search for something. If I'm looking up a book or a training program, now you get all these ads. They're tracking that stuff. So it's not necessarily they look as 
Law enforcement is watching me. I don't want to be involved in it. I'm not going to wear one. Everything is being recorded around you. Um, we're just using it, as you pointed out, for documentation and follow-up. How are we going to proceed if there's a criminal action? That's all it's for. I could care less who a person is at a coffee shop with uh, than I am about, you know, somebody walking their dog in a neighborhood. You know, I, we need to, to have that. And I, I think you're, you're going to start seeing more of that. I just don't see a lot of it happening in the schools because we want to protect the innocence of our children in that learning and growing environment. I also think that, you know, we talk about that culture and that climate. I think the pandemic didn't help because a lot of the students don't have those social skills. They haven't developed that. There was that span in there where they, a couple of years where they really didn't have those social circles. So if you're going in there and if administrators and teachers and faculty, food service workers serving in the, the cafeteria, custodial staff, who, who do you limit? Who's going to have it? And, and that innocence of those children, but they don't realize their classmates are already recording them. Yeah. All right. Well, I'm sorry for taking us on uh, such a long tangent, but we, no, I, and I we've, enjoyed the we've conversation, been going, sir. Yeah. We've been going for a while. So um, any, is there really anything regarding schools? We've covered a lot of ground. Um, any question about schools or anything that I didn't ask that I should have, or anything that you want to mention? If not, like um, what's um, no. I, I like to, I like to uh, kind of wrap with just a couple of things. Um, number one, um, you, you said you're, you put on some different trainings and stuff. So if somebody wants to get with you and, uh, learn more about working in schools or some of the other things you're working on, how, how can someone get in touch with you? Uh, primarily for me is through LinkedIn. I am trying to set up my own company. Uh, I've already registered Doizak in leadership. I'm working on a couple of books, but right now it's primarily through LinkedIn. Um, my, Outside work, the work, the mentoring, the coaching, the public speaking I do has all been, I haven't done it professionally. I've been doing it for a number of years. I started public speaking in 1999, I think it was, going out to private companies. And I've gone to small companies here and talked about creative thought, cre uh, critical thinking, leadership. But LinkedIn right now is the best way to reach me through LinkedIn. And Once I your the, last your last name is spelled D O I Z A K I. That is correct. I should be the only. There's probably a couple others on there, but I'm I'm probably I'm pretty active on there. But the company I'm setting up, I've been working on the web page. Is actually working with a marketing individual last night. Is Doizaki on Leadership? That'll be Doizaki on Leadership dot uh, Hope to have that up in the next week. Got two books I'm working on trying to get out on leadership. I've got a third book on meditative thought. A fourth one is a leadership workbook. So I've got a lot of little projects, but working with individuals like you, Patrick, and reaching out on a few other podcasts, that's a passion for me is, is these conversations. I don't think we're doing enough of that. And my big push on LinkedIn for me is connecting with people outside my circle of influence, people doing different you're back east, you're in a different culture and different environment. But I've connected with real estate agents. I've connected with people doing different professions. I have no idea anything about their market, but being open to those conversations like this, their perception and mine are different. Let's have a conversation. It's not going to change 
but it will open our eyes to what is going on. So, so LinkedIn for, is a place right now. So, uh, and so last question, and just maybe in 60 seconds or less, if you have a law enforcement administrator or an agency that's thinking about disbanding uh, a, a school resource program, what would be your argument to them to not do that? Or, or maybe I guess conversely, for someone that's thinking about starting a, an SRO program, what are the benefits? What, what, what's your, what's your big sell? The first one I'd say the impact would be greater to disband it than it is to improve it. It's cheaper to build on it and clean it up, add more to it than it is to try to come back and redo it later. My old man always said, if you can't afford to do it right the first time, when can you afford to come back and redo it? Don't give up what you've got, improve it. As an organization looking at it, education, get those resources, put them in place, community, engage the community in the training and the program. If they're involved from the get-go, you've got more support from the community. We, we can't do it in a vacuum. Perfect. Let's close it on that. Perfect, sir. Happy. I appreciate uh, the again. conversation. Yeah, man. Happy, happy birthday again to uh, all, all your uh, fellow Marines out there. Semper five. Thank you, sir. And a happy Veterans Day to you and yours. <laughs> all right. Thank you, everybody. I really appreciate you listening to another episode of the Coptimizer podcast. This has been Randall Doizaki. We covered uh, a lot of ground, particularly in regards to uh, schools and SROs, and that, because that's where he's working in. But uh, you can hit up Randall on LinkedIn if you want to contact him to get more information about what he's up to. But until I'm the also next with per performance protocol. Oh yeah, <laughs> yep, a coach with performance protocol. Maybe we should have yeah. covered that right from the beginning. <laughs> yeah. All right. Thanks, until, sir. Until the next episode, we'll be ten forty-two. The Coptimizer podcast is powered by Performance Protocol. Performance Protocol brings professional executive coaching to police officers and administrators at all levels of the organization. Performance Protocol has the blueprint that will operationalize organizational optimization. It is purpose-built for today's public safety employees to help them accomplish goals and live better. What is it? one-on-one -on -one video based coaching with officers and leaders who have been in your shoes and know firsthand what it means to live and work in public safety. The program will connect you with certified coaches who combine their years of success in the world of law enforcement with world-class training from the cobble of performance protocol coaches. Get the support, resources, motivation you need to live the life you want. Performance protocol coaches are relatable, knowledgeable, and confidential. Most importantly, they get results. Why should the keys to unlocking our peak performance be reserved for just the boardroom or the playing field? Unleash your full potential today and get started with Performance Protocol. Remember, performance is the goal. Protocol is the path. Log into www.performance-protocol.com and learn more about how to bring this program to your agency and community.